Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Strong print on GDP this morning, but are there hidden dangers from disinflation slowing, lurking beneath the surface? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, January 25th, 2024. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Daniel Lacal, Chief Economist at Tresses. Daniel, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Ash. Well, we always appreciate it when you come and join us. Lots to talk about today. Lots happening overall on the macro front. Uh, so your timing is perfect. Daniel, let's start out big picture, 50,000 foot overview. Where do you see us right now? Well, right now, the, the economy is showing a strong level of growth that is helped fundamentally by uh, three things. No? On the one hand, obviously, a massive increase in public debt, but also in consumer debt. The second is that the economy continues to have the tailwind of the services sector bounce after the reopening, which is quite, quite strong. And the third one is that the uh, official disinflation process is certainly helping the real GDP figure, the deflator of GDP, is supporting a higher print on GDP than what probably citizens are feeling in their pockets, no? Because uh, CPI and obviously the GDP deflator tend to be significantly lower than what we lose in purchasing power of our currency. So, in general, what we can say is that the United States economy is significantly stronger than, obviously, the absolutely atrocious situation of the euro area, um, but that uh, the, the, the slowdown is quite evident. We have to remember that in today's print, in today's GDP print, there is a very significant, uh, let's say, help from inventory revaluation, a very significant help from a level of government spending that seems to have consolidated the excessive level of increase that was generated uh, throughout the pandemic. So those factors sort of disguise the slowdown. And I think that the slowdown is, mm. is quite evident, particularly in fixed, in, in fixed investment and in the, uh, let's say, the productive sector. The manufacturing sector is very weak, et cetera. No? Well, it's always cold comfort to be the cleanest shirt in the pile of dirty laundry here in the United States in terms of uh, economic performance. Let me zero in on something because I think this has caused uh, a great deal of pain uh, to individuals and households in addition to investors. Let's talk about that inflation piece. You mentioned uh, this idea of whether you're using a GDP deflator, CPI, PCE. It seems to understate the rate of inflation that consumers actually feel. Two questions for you on this. Number one, why is that the case? Why are these uh, indicators not 
indexing for the actual rate of purchasing power decline, number one. And number two, do you have a, a formula or a sense of what the proportion is uh, that it's understating it by? How do you get there? And how do we get a sense of what the real decline in purchasing power from inflation is? Okay, that it's uh, the reason why CPI and the official uh, in measures of inflation tend to underestimate inflation is, is quite simple. It's because they uh, create a basket of goods and services that include the essential goods that we purchase on a daily basis, what we call the non-replaceable goods, with things that we purchase uh, from time to time. For example, uh, food, energy, we purchase on a daily basis. Technology, hospitality, we purchase more uh, depending on the on the month, uh, different uh, different elements or less. No, so uh, the what one thing that I like to look at is at the pace of increase in non-replaceable goods and services. And if we look at the accumulated inflation since two thousand and nineteen in the United States, it's a staggering twenty one percent. So to think that there's that there that we have won the battle against inflation is right. is a bit of a joke. But if we look at the increase in non-replaceable goods and services, healthcare, uh, energy, the uh, increase in, for example, insurance, in uh, shelter, if we look at all those things, the increase is actually about thirty to thirty-five percent higher. So. Wow. In general, if you look at, for example, uh, the latest CPI print, what do we see? We have seen a significant decline in, in the energy component, absolutely. But if you look at the December CPI print, all prices continue to rise month on month, despite the fact that we have seen interest rate hikes and a reduction in money supply. So uh, if there are different measures of what we would call the shadow inflation or right. uh, an alternative measure of inflation. Uh, the one that I like to look at uh, basically uh, measures inflation the way in without the changes in the basket that we have seen since 2008-2019-20. Because most of those changes basically reduced the weight of the things that we purchase on a daily basis. And, and, there, and therefore at, the rate of inflation that they reflected. Exactly, exactly. So usually the CPI tends to underestimate the uh, loss of purchase and power of those of us that have to, let's say, uh, spend more on what are considered essentials. No, And that's why there is a very wide difference between the CPI and the measures of inflation of the lower incomes, because as you spend more, for example, on food, on energy, et cetera, than on technology, hospitality, et cetera, inevitably, inevitably there's going to be an impact on, uh, on, your, on your inflation. So the shadow inflation in the United States that I look at is running basically at almost double the level that we have in the CPI print. So it's around 5.76%, more or less. That's annual. So, so let's talk about this. There's there's so much here on inflation. One, one point that I just want to make is when you talk about 
uh, healthcare, and I would also add to that education. These are secular 30-year-plus stories that have uh, significantly eroded the purchasing power and, frankly, uh, the economic position of working-class, uh, middle-class Americans uh, for decades, literally decades. But to focus on exactly what we're talking about here, and I know this may be a little bit basic for some people, but I want people to understand what inflation really is. Inflation is a rate. It is a rate of change. You can think of this like a, like a, a speed that you drive in your car. If you're driving 60 miles per hour and you go out and you drive for four hours and then you decrease your speed to 30 miles per hour, what really matters is kind of the distance that you've covered over five hours. Those prices don't go back down. So when people say, well, you know, inflation, it's, it's slowed dramatically. It's about 3%. What's the big deal? The big deal is exactly what you pointed out uh, earlier, which is that over a period from 2019, basically from the pandemic phase, you've lost just if you, if you accept, and, and you, you may not, you may say it's actually higher than that if you look at alternate methods, so some shadow measures of inflation. But if you just accept the CPI print data, I mean, I went up on Fred yesterday and indexed it to the low from the pandemic, which I think was like May, spring of 2020. You've lost 20% of your purchasing power, 20% of your purchasing power. That's like if you're a guy or gal making $50,000 a year, it's like your boss came to you and said, we're only going to pay you $40,000 a year. Hope that's okay with you. For a lot of families, obviously, that's not. And this causes potential risk of macroeconomic instability, potential poses potential risk to growth, uh, to the employment market. I mean, all kinds of things that can uh, sort of daisy chain forward from that. I mean, this really is a story of significant, significant pain uh, here in the United States and elsewhere in the world where we see similar phenomena. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And that's why I get so angry when I hear that inflation is coming down as if it was prices coming down. No? Because I always say to my students, if I gain 10 pounds a year and then I gain four, I haven't lost any weight. No? We need to understand the cumulative level of inflation. More importantly, uh, is the changes in the calculation of CPI are also relevant. And those are not adjusted backward. Backwards, see you when when the uh, Bureau of uh, Statistics uh, ch changes the the CPI components and uh, and their weight, they don't give you an alternative table of what has happened with the previous measure and the current. You just basically assume that what you're comparing the 3.1 percent that you're comparing today is equivalent to the nine percent that you had a few a couple of years ago. And no, they're not. No. So all of those elements, that's why, the, that's why it's so dangerous to pursue inflationary policies, printing money, uh, massively increasing government spending as we saw throughout the pandemic, and then deciding to uh, offset that uh, increase in inflation by hiking rates and by uh, reducing the quantity of money rapidly. Because on the way in, the size of government rises dramatically and the loss of purchasing power for citizens is, is very, very quick. But on the way out, when rates start, start to rise and when liquidity starts to contract, the ones that are suffering the impact of the normalization of monetary policy are citizens, are small businesses and families. So right. 
in so-called monetary expansion periods, the huge uh, beneficiary, the biggest beneficiary is government size in the economy and government spending and obviously government debt. On the way out with rate hikes and monetary contraction, the biggest winners are also the, the size of government in the economy and government spending, while the entire burden of the uh, disinflation process falls uh, on the shoulders of small and medium enterprises and of families. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. By the way, when I did this exercise of indexing to 2019 to see how much inflation there had been, this wasn't because I'd read a, you know, a scholarly work on macroeconomics. It was because I went to the grocery store and I bought six rolls of paper towels and they charged me 30 bucks for it. And there was a moment there where you go, some, obviously something is happening here. It's been cumulative over time uh, and it's a significant problem. Daniel, I want to take a look at a clip uh, because this dovetails so perfectly into what we're talking about here right now. Uh, this is a conversation, how to invest in a world in transition on the Real Vision Essential tier. This is Nick Lawson you're going to hear from, uh, a recent interview with Samuel Burke. Let's take a look at the clip. And I think that zero interest rates has meant that you've had, for that period, a sort of dichotomy between, and it's almost like a, a Marxist dichotomy between the owners of assets and the renters of assets. Because in a zero rate environment, every asset went up. In those that obviously that didn't own assets became obviously disadvantaged from that, and now we have this sort of like um, this sort of protracted um, uh, accumulative effect of this distortion, which has now led us in 2024 to a situation now where people are feeling that they want to change regardless of what that change is. Now I talk about why this environment is so rich because I think one of the things that's happened now has been. With the distrust that exists within the public, people have turned to the internet. They've turned to um, uh, different um, uh, sort of like sources of, of, of news, such as you know the Twitter or X, you know yourselves. And I believe the information now is in a completely different forum than where it was before. And I think with interest rates at five percent, what we've done is we've knocked out two things. We've knocked out that carry trade. So you can't just make money from anything you do at zero percent uh, interest rates. And secondly, you've knocked out zombie companies. So unproductive companies do not work. So I think the, the paradigm we face now is we've got so much going on, so many sort of exogenous events in the market. And I think at the same time, we're asking more from the companies that we invest in. You've got to be able to beat not just your cost of capital, but probably something more than that to generate return which means that only good companies are surviving, which is probably why I'm so um, excited by it. Well, Daniel, exactly what we were just talking about, macroeconomic distortions caused uh, by unconventional monetary policy, uh, zero interest rates, and then some. Uh, how do you think about it uh, in terms of this distortion premise? How do you think about it? Uh, what would you add to that point? Uh, well, I, I agree with almost everything that he says, and I completely concur with, with the diagnosis. What's the biggest problem that we are living right now is that we have not seen the cleanup of the zombie companies, and we have not seen the cleanup of the excess in government spending that was uh, massively increased taking advantage or because of the pandemic. But it's interesting to see 
how uh, usually what happens in a process of monetary contraction and rate hikes is that the uh, excesses of the past, be it zombie companies, excessively indebted uh, and badly managed businesses, and the uh, governments that have not done their homeworks and have massively increased their deficit, those in the contraction tend to suffer. But this is not what has happened this time. What has happened this time has actually been the opposite, and that's why I'm worried. So I agree that there is a fantastic opportunity in those companies that are in technology, in the disruptive side of technology, in innovation, that have uh, managed their balance sheet properly and kept their margins. But my concern about this process is that the level of excess increased dramatically in a very short period of time between March and September 2020, that we saw the largest monetary base increase in history, uh, in the recent history of, um, of, the, of the economy. No? But not only that, is that uh, government spending, deficit spending has not been reduced. I, I find it amazing that people look at the GDP figures today and do not see that a two and change trillion deficit is an, an abomination in this kind of an economy. So basically, uh, my concern in this current environment is that on the one hand, we have not seen that clean up of those large businesses and uh, quoted companies that went way uh, too high on, on debt and took uh, too much risk. And we have not seen uh, a sobering of the, uh, of, of the monetary laughing gas effect of government spending. So that is the problem, because if we now start a process of rate cuts and liquidity, net liquidity, by the way, is, is rising and, and money supply has also uh, recovered quite significantly since, since November. So we may not have seen a process of cleanup enough in order to really set the economy to a more productive and uh, stronger level of growth uh, afterwards. Sometimes disguising or uh, hiding a recession is a bad thing. Recessions usually are a symptom or or the core or the or the consequence of an excess no so when we disguise a recession with high deficit huge debt and at the same time by the entire burden as i said before of rate hikes and monetary contraction falls on the very small businesses and families then Instead of cleaning up the 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 problem, what we have, what we do basically, and what has happened, and we are seeing in the United States GDP, is that the problem is actually accelerating, not not slowing down. So let me ask you that to this point about GDP, we got something of a a bit of a Goldilocks print this morning. Uh, obviously, these are real inflation adjusted figures, so it's uh, it's adjusted for inflation. And of course, it's presented a seasonalized annualized rate, uh, seasonally adjusted annualized rate. So why don't we see more impact from the debt and deficit overhang uh, plus inflation? Like, why hasn't that been more of a component uh, to getting a number that looks pretty good? Well, because uh, we have heard the narrative that monetary policy has been restrictive. And monetary policy has been hugely accommodative. 
money supply may have declined a little bit, but what we have seen is a monster increase in the uh, access to the window of liquidity of the Fed by banks. Therefore, access to credit has not only not fallen, it's basically flat no? in an environment that should be of monetary contraction. So think about this. Think about what is going on. This is like basically, uh, this is like a, 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 an economy. Think about an athlete that is uh, running out of steam that is uh, that is really 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 tired and suddenly gets a huge boost of steroids. Uh, the athlete is not getting any better, but can still uh, show uh, a certain level of performance. This is what right. we are seeing right now. If you look at the GDP, excluding the accumulation of public debt, this is the worst print in uh, basically since the 30s. Basically, the worst print since the 30s. So obviously, what happens is that you're bloating GDP in a various number of ways. Number one, government spending. But government spending does not only affect uh, that, that part of the calculation. It also affects consumption because there's a lot of public, uh, public sector workers that have been added to the labor force, and those are also spending more. Real consumption... Uh, is relatively strong, but if you look at it, what we're seeing basically is the effect of the reduction in savings, and therefore mm. people are consuming from their credit cards. Investment is quite poor. And then you have, and this is the key, and this is another key component, the, uh, the external sector. You have exports minus imports. Hey, you have a massive boost for the U.S. economy coming from lower imports because oil prices have fallen, because we have seen most of commodities declining last year, etc. So you have a number of things that are not improving the situation of the average citizen, of families, of small businesses, and that are basically disguised by the fact that uh, the 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 element of uh, contraction of 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 supply of credit has not happened. In fact, uh, mm. we have seen basically the opposite. No, so that's why it happened. That the other element is what we discussed prior, which is that the GDP deflator has come down radically, and that obviously boosts real GDP. Mm. But ask families if their month-on-month, year-on-year expenditures have declined as massively as the GDP deflator. That does not mean that it's badly calculated. It means that in periods in which there is a huge boost of inflation, there is a period, even when there is a gradual disinflation, in which the elements of higher prices on the non-replaceable goods that we mentioned before, the sticky inflation on shelter, on used cars, et cetera, et cetera, all those things um, maintain a certain level of uh, robustness in the consumption figure that is actually not real because it doesn't mean that citizens are purchasing more things with uh, their salaries, but purchasing the same at higher prices, no? We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So the, so the good news is it's measured correctly. The bad news is it doesn't mean what you think it means. Exactly. 
it's, it means, <laughs> exactly, it means that the economy is slowing down much faster than it looks. And what it means basically, and I, I had this call yesterday from a friend in Arizona, and, he's a, and, and this person was saying, I see everything very, very challenging. I don't see this as a booming economy. And I said, well, you're probably right. You're probably right, because what, what you are seeing is your consumption in real terms, real to your salary, not real to you, to a, uh, a basket deflator, i.e. what he is seeing is what am I purchasing with $1 relative to what the, the average is calculated from by the, by, by the Bureau of Statistics. And I'm not saying that it's badly calculated, by the way. I have to say, we all have to say that the CPI measure is a good way of analyzing year-on-year -year trends, not reduction of purchasing power of the currency. That is the key. Such a good point. It's useful for one particular thing, for economists who are understanding the directionality of the trend, but not useful for judging the level of pain you feel in the economy. I'm going to get to questions in just one second because we have a really interesting and fun one uh, up next. But let me ask you this. Uh, since we've recently just passed Davos, it's interesting. One of the cool things about Davos this year uh, is they invited uh, Kevin Roberts, the uh, the head of the Heritage Foundation out there. You know, people have been criticizing them, saying, hey, listen, you don't have any conservative viewpoints out uh, about what's happening. This tends to skew left of center. They brought Kevin Roberts out and he just lowered the boom on them and framed out. By the way, we don't do politics here at Real Vision Daily Briefing, but if you want to get a sense of what the conservative opinion is about the Davos consensus. And I think it's really important if you're an investor in these markets, you got to understand all sides of this. Uh, Kevin Roberts delivers the goods. Tell me what you thought about what happened at Davos this year, uh, what you think of Davos more generally, and how it plays into all of these issues that we're talking about right now. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've been uh, to Davos five times in my life, and I stopped going when there was no discussion on anything. You know, it was basically just a mantra repeated as if you were, uh, you know, basically in some kind of a, of a, of a sect uh, uh, gathering. It made no sense to uh, witness presentation after presentation after presentation of people saying exactly the same things over and over. No. So mm -hmm. I think that what was refreshing about Davos this year is precisely what you just said, is that we need to hear different opinions and different viewpoints. And we need to see that there is not one way of dealing with everything, particularly when um, it is painfully obvious that the way of dealing with things in the economy in the, since the 2008 crisis has been a phenomenal failure both in terms of the reduction of poverty, the reduction of inequality, and all those things. There's been a massive increase in debt, massive increase in government size, huge increase in taxes, and uh, the elements that those uh, so-called uh, top-down views should have brought have not happened. So, okay, fair enough. Let's hear different viewpoints. And I think that that's why it's so important to have people like Kevin. It's so important to have people like uh, Millet also saying, look, let me give you the example of Argentina, because people think that Argentina is an example that, oh, you know, is something that doesn't, that doesn't matter. No, Argentina actually has been implementing those policies that have been the consensus of Davos for 60 years. 
No? So I think that that's been a very important refreshing factor is to bring back debate, bring back realistic debate, not mantras, bring back the analysis of what is happening in the economy, not saying, oh, well, there was this two trillion stimulus plan. It didn't work. Well, it's because we didn't spend enough, obviously. We, you know, we need a little bit more granularity and a little bit more less mantra and a little bit less, you know, new religion of statism that obviously is not working for the average citizen, is not working for the average, um, for the average business. And what the reason why I don't like that is very simple, is that we are destroying the foundations of progress. The foundations of progress are saving the uh, the the very important factor of creative destruction and prudent investment, not spending and debt, and certainly not constant bailout of the zombies uh, to raise taxes on the small productive businesses. Yeah, uh, so so well said, and that's exactly what we're doing right now. Uh, talking about these issues uh, in ways that you might not hear somewhere else. Uh, and uh, we're committed to that, obviously, at Real Vision. If you don't hear at least one thing, no matter what side you're on that makes you uncomfortable, we're probably not doing our jobs. Listen, this is a great question uh, from Bonito, and I, it's a fun one. Uh, Daniel, should we be looking at the global economies as a collective Beetlejuice market? Follow me, he says. A once bright star, still functioning, but running out of gas, rapidly transitioning from growing to shrinking and back the most likely result being it goes supernova moving forward because its chemistry has irreversibly affected its function. Boy, that is such a great description of hysteresis. And to pick up on your metaphor uh, from earlier about uh, the athlete who is taking steroids, yeah, maybe you can run faster for a couple of quarters, but maybe you destroy your knees in the process. Absolutely. That uh, I, I love the analogy and I love the question. I would like to be able to have the memory to, to repeat it entirely. But I think that it's extremely important to understand that these policies of always dealing with a contraction, not even a crisis, with a contraction by massively increasing government spending, massively increasing debt, huge monetary expansion, negative real rates and negative nominal rates as we have had in the euro area, they don't improve the economy. They bloat the economy. Getting fatter is not getting stronger. And that is the problem. And that, and he uh, or she who made the question um, is saying something that I think is very important is that Every time that we get out of a recession, it is true that recessions now are shorter, and more prolonged, shorter, and the impact is marginal. But the flip side of that is that the level of growth that we achieve once we get out of a recession is very, very poor, and the trend is worsening every time that real wages of citizens don't grow with uh, uh, offsetting the impact of the loss of purchasing power of the, of the currency, and that the imbalances generated basically make the economy weaker, bloated, and passing to next generations a huge burden that, by the way, always explodes. 
you know, the, 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 the problem of the people that say, oh, it's been a huge success and we found the way to deal with every crisis. Well, if the way to deal with every crisis is to go from an unsustainable 500 billion deficit to a 2 trillion deficit and make it uh, constant, be my guest and wait for the, for the burst. You say, okay, I'm, I'm, many people will think, well, I don't care as long as the music lasts. But we're we're supposed to care, and and I certainly do because I have children, and I'm hoping someday to have grandchildren. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I just saw uh, Stephanie Kelton on Bloomberg uh, a couple of days ago talking about essentially saying, you know, deficits still don't matter, debt still doesn't matter, and it, and it's interesting because you know you have to give her credit for being correct uh, for that period between you know 2019 and 2024. Uh, but mm -hmm. you have to ask this question, is so, Is it possible that there's a certain range, a certain parameter set of conditions whereby it doesn't matter uh, until it does, right? It's, uh, it's, and, it's and more importantly, no, she hasn't been correct. No, she hasn't been correct because the United States is on its way to spend 20, more on uh, interests from the debt, even with all of the all of the help of the of the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, more each year, and it's on its way to spend about twenty percent of its of a, of the budget in interest expenses. So, no. So basically, what she is saying is the following: What she is saying is that I have a credit card, and so far, nobody at the bank has called me to say that I am in overdraft. Ha ha ha. What a success. Well, it will it, it it does happen. And how does it happen? Well, you have it first, the 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 now, now we consider that if the 10-year government bond moves between 3% and 4%, it's going to be a success. I mean, think about that, what it means to the long-term cost of debt. Think about what the the CBO, the Congress Budget Office, without considering a single recession with an average growth of 2% sees the debt of the United States growing massively. And in the administration's own estimates, it's 14 trillion of deficits between, 2020, between 2023 and 2032. So if those things happen, ultimately, if what she thinks uh, works, what is going to happen is that everybody that is watching us and their children are going to be much poorer in real terms. If she is not right, it may actually put in danger the position of the United States dollar because it's all a question of confidence. And all empires think that they have no problem until it pass, until it happens. Why? Because risk and everybody that follows us and that is watching us right now knows this, risks build slowly, but they happen fast. What yeah. Stephanie Kelton thinks is that risk happens slowly and that when what I say, what you say, what people that follow us say actually happens, there will be plenty of time to deal with it. And that is what is not true and has never been true with any, with any government. Think about the UK, Think about the, the think about Japan. You want to tell the Japanese how they are feeling the destruction of purchasing power of the of the yen and the and, and the collapse to a 40-year low of the yen relative to 
And again, look at Japan. Japan is a country in which they have bloated the debt to 200 and change percent of GDP, and they spend 25% of their budget in interest expenses, despite massively monetizing the debt. No, of course it, you know, it's like when my children were small, they had these toys where you just pushed one thing and another thing would jump uh, the other way. That's the economy. That is. It just balances out. Yeah. Yeah, it would be great to get you and Stephanie Kelton on to maybe have this conversation together. Oh, anytime. Uh, here on Real Vision, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, one more question. We, we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to throw this out there. Just get a quick answer to this. Uh, it comes from another one of our regular viewers, Ralph Humphrey, who says, uh, what are Daniel's thoughts on China? And is Daniel constructive uh, more broadly on any economy around the world? Great question. Thoughts on China, thoughts on where you see opportunity elsewhere in the world. EMs have just gotten hammered. Well, I see opportunity in the United States, by the way. I am hugely long the United States. Uh, because it's a relative bet. The world is a relative bet. No, do I have a constructive view on the United States? Uh, absolutely, I do. I have tremendous faith in the United States as, as one of the very few economies that is, continues to be dynamic enough to, to strengthen uh, and strengthen quickly after a recession. So uh, do I have faith in China? Absolutely. I just ca I came back from China before uh, Christmas. And think about this despite the burst of the largest real estate bubble in history and the largest in terms of size uh, relative to GDP, China is an economy that you may not believe that it's growing at 4%. It's fine. But do the calculation that you want. Make your own independent calculation of what level of growth. It's the only economy in the past uh, two, three decades that with such a massive burst of the real estate bubble is growing. So let's start by that. The other thing is that in China, at least the government is understanding that the huge problem that they have with real estate and construction is because of massive government stimulus plans. And despite of the calls from every consensus analyst saying that they need to implement a massive stimulus uh, plan, yeah. what they know is that their problems come from huge stimulus packages. So, right. uh, so, you know, China is on its path. It's not, that does not mean that, that, that you need to invest in China because what I think that the Hansen is discounting uh, is more the inevitable, the inevitable devaluation of the Yuan than the GDP or the margins of the, of the companies of the index. Well, um, Daniel, I was going to say, you know, let's see, uh, stimulus, um, monetary policy distortion, budget deficits, debt. I mean, to quote the great Herman's Hermits, second verse, same as the first. We literally <laughs> see this all around the world and it rhymes. Uh, listen, we could have this conversation for probably another three hours. I uh, would love to have you back, maybe do it in a longer form format, um, but we do have to go. But I wanted to read this before we, uh, before we end this conversation, because I think it's just so powerful. Uh, J&J &J LTD posted in the comments of this uh, just two minutes ago. As a small business owner, I just want to say, I feel seen. Boy, that's, I mean, that this is, this is what people around the world feel. And I think uh, oftentimes when they're hanging out, watching cable news networks, looking at the charts of uh, the S&P and the NASDAQ and the Magnificent Seven, they don't see their own experience. Uh, Daniel, when you're on and when you talk about the way you see markets uh, and the broader macro economy, they, they feel it and they feel seen. Wonderful, 
wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for that comment. It's really inspiring, and 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 uh, and thank you very much for the for this riveting conversation. Really had a great, great, great time. Thank you very much. Me too. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, before we go, one quick thing: Real Vision is giving away free NFTs for all new Real Vision members. The pre-mint is open now. The mint opens on January twenty-fifth and runs through February 1st. To be eligible for that mint, you first have to open a Real Vision freemium account. On top of that, you can get access to our new platform. So head over to realvision.com forward slash RVNFT. That's realvision.com forward slash RVNFT and sign up. Thanks so much for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. See you then. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Hey, everybody. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code RealVision.